Welcome everyone to the Burnham Brothers uh, BJJ podcast, uh, which is myself, Cooper, and my other son and Cooper's younger brother, Bodie, who's currently in bed, <laughs> day off school, so he's uh, chilling. Um, yeah, brought to you by Cartel Los Angeles and Australia. Um, and our special guest today is, uh, he's got a pretty impressive record, 2007 ADCC champion, 2005 IBJJF world champion, 2005-06 CBJJO world cup champion, then transitioned to MMA, just had a, the average 7-0 record, none other than Mr. Robert Drysdale, welcome sir. Welcome. Thanks for having me guys, it's a pleasure to be here. How is, um, well, first of all, first of all, are you um, starring in an upcoming film, um, like a caveman role or something? Yeah. That, that's, that's it that's it we're we're doing it we're doing a story about cave people and <laughs> i got it as hairy as possible yeah, nice. <laughs> looks like you've got it um... you know the really thing is i was saying i stopped giving a shit you know? <laughs> and then i just want to see how ugly i can make myself and you know it's the results are surprising very impressive results i'm turning into a very very hideous human being <laughs> didn't you shave that um, off not long ago your kid shaved it off yeah, Mike, they trimmed it. You know, they didn't want to shave. The thing is, like, the, whenever I do shave, they, they, they get angry. My oh, younger really? one will cry, and, like, she, she hates me. with my, She's used to have me having a beard, so daddy has a beard. So if she yeah. sees me, like, you know, if I shave clean, she's not too happy. So they only trim it. They never really, you know, go full-blown. But, yeah, I, now I'm going to start shaving my head bald. That's the plan. I feel embarrassed by it because I've been, since we shut our gym down, I said, right, I'm growing a beard until we go back. You can barely yeah. see mine on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that was kind of the thing is like, I'm going to let it grow until this whole thing goes back to normal. And the only thing actually, you know, two problems, like it gets really hot here in Vegas. So it gets uncomfortable. Yeah. And the other one is like, you can't really train with a long beard because people, they cannot grab the collar without pulling your yeah. beard. So that part sucks. We had a guy train with us that had a beard and yeah, every time you went for his collar, his lapels, he'd just end up with a handful of whiskers. Nah, not fun. It couldn't have been good for him either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Right. So, how are things? How is uh, lockdown in Vegas going, and what what sort of things are you guys doing at your academy to to keep moving along? I suppose keep everyone moving at some point. Um, you know, try to stay positive. You know, it's it's not easy. Like this has been a huge financial hit on all of us. Uh, I, you know, I'm I just signed the lease a week before the lockdown. Anderson. So now I'm about to start paying rent on a building that is empty and I can't even open. It has zero students. So you can imagine how that's going, right? Yeah, that'd be but, great. You know, I, I think that when, 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 really, when really bad things happen, the only reaction is to laugh the face of the abyss and just hold the line and just keep, keep laughing and moving forward. There's nothing else to do, you know, because despairing doesn't do much. I tend to, you know, I used to, I think I still do sometimes, but you know, my reaction this time has been more like, fuck it, you know, and just yep. keep moving forward and whatever happens, happens and just kind of be content with whatever the end result is, you know, yeah. and not be, not create too many expectations for, for the future and just, you know, enjoy the moment and whatever may be, may be, you know, and let it, let it be. Yeah. Have you been doing any like online classes or anything like that or nah? Yeah, we, we started with some Zoom classes and uh, for our students, and then I said, if I'm going to be live on the internet, I might as, might as well um, go on, uh, um, open up on YouTube and Instagram, yeah. so I'm opening up a broader audience, and I just finished, like, about 30 minutes ago, a live chat on YouTube, uh, which I've been doing daily Monday through Thursday at 5.30 uh, p.m., uh, 5 p.m., I'm sorry, Las Vegas time, Yep. so... I'm not sure what time it would be over there, but 5 p.m. It's on my Drysdale Virtual Academy channel on YouTube. Ah, cool. And, um, yeah. So if you guys want to show up, participate, ask questions. It's a Q&A, basically. It's not really a class. I just show techniques and answer questions. No, that'd be great, actually. I might, uh, I might jump on there next week and have a look. It's about 10 o'clock at a.m. our time, so. Yeah. Okay, that works. Yes, that's fine. I'll be at work. I'll just hide in the office. <laughs> <laughs> um. What um, what was it like growing up in Brazil, uh, in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu scene there? Like, I'd imagine it would have been pretty hectic, a lot of high-level guys. Um, 
what was that like growing up in that scene? Uh, it's funny. Like I didn't never, I never heard of jujitsu in Brazil until Hoist Gracie won the UFC. Yep. A lot of people have this impression jujitsu is like, he's like, it's like Muay Thai in Thailand. You know, they, they make that comparison all the time. It's not the case. Now you oh, yeah. can say that. Now you can say that. But at the time I started training, then uh, it was, it was not very popular. Judo was popular, Taekwondo, Karate, Kung Fu, all of those. But jujitsu was something that we had maybe heard of, but I had never seen a school. I had no idea what it looked like. It was just a word that was, you know, we associated with the Japanese martial art, but we know what it was. Yeah. After Hoist Gracie, you know, because jiu-jitsu almost dies in Brazil many times, right? It makes a comeback in the 90s, you know, mainly through, like, the Luta Livre Jiu-Jitsu Challenge and then later Hoist Gracie in 93. And that's when it really shows up on the scene. It starts really blowing up. It blows up in Brazil around the same time it's blowing up around the world. The only difference is in Brazil there were more instructors. So it grew faster. There were more black belts available. So, like, things picked up a little bit faster in Brazil than they did in the U.S. or Australia, for example, which – didn't you know they didn't have a first black belt until years later but um it, it was but growing up in brazil was fun man like i'm very i wouldn't change my childhood in brazil for anything in the world you know yeah. as an adult i'd much rather live in the u.s you know for economic reasons obviously but as far as being a child it was there was less constriction there were less rules being a kid in brazil you you know, I grew up in a countryside, so it was outside big cities. So I got to get, you know, we climbed fences, climbed trees. You know, we get into trouble, get into fights, you know, steal fruit from the neighbor's orchard. You know, like we do stupid <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Scrape your knees when you fall. You just like, you know, rub it off and keep running. You know, if you get beat up, no one calls the police. Yeah. The word bullying doesn't exist. The word does not exist in Portuguese. It gives you an idea. Of how yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah, you can't translate it. Yep. There's no translation. So it gives an idea of how Brazilians feel about it. It's like it's part of being a kid. Like, shut up, pick yourself together and go do it again. You know, now <laughs> yeah. funny, they'll, they actually borrow the term from English. They say bully, bully. Yep. They borrow the term from English because the word doesn't exist. But now it's a thing there. But growing up as a kid, it wasn't. Yep. So it was fun. It was fun. I, um, I enjoyed uh, every second of it and a lot of good memories. Yep. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to live there as an adult, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fair enough. Um, we hear a lot like uh, talking to Cooper's professor, Tiago, who you're good friends with also, uh, okay. about you guys and on the comp scene when you were colored belts, how many comps you used to do. Tiago said we'd catch a bus from one comp to another comp and, yeah. Some weekends we'd do three comps in a weekend. I'm just like, what? Yeah. How was that? What was uh, what was that experience like that as colored belts? That was a lot of fun. Like, and I, I got to get a lot of credit to Paulo Strecker for that. I don't know if you guys ever met Paulo, but Paulo was very unique amongst Brazilian jiu-jitsu coaches. In, in this sense, the most, most unique. But he would, if you had this much potential, it's almost like if you were like this, like if you were good, it's almost like to your detriment because it's like you're <laughs> you know it's yeah. like the people who have no talent you'd be like okay you're better off you know because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't on your case about you competing all the time but he, he made it he made it, he was a very he's a very special individual and i really cherish those years because he made it fun like generally speaking i'm terrified of competition like i'm the guy that can't sleep and i i used to cry before i go compete you know like it was such a hard thing for me but paulo made it fun i would want to go not so much because I wanted to compete, because I didn't want to miss out on being with my friends yeah. and being left out of all the action, the fun, and the stories that would come from the trips, right? So the yep. best part wasn't even the competition. It was just like the dumb shit these guys would do on the trips. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was just nonstop joking and laughing and pranks and like, it was ghetto as it gets. Like, I, one of our guys, I'm not going to mention his name, but you know him. His name is Gustavo. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, we didn't have money. Everyone's broke, right? Like, we would just be trying to, like, if people had leftovers from food in the restaurant, he just, we just, like, go pick it up and bring it to our table. <laughs> Good old Gustavo. But, but we do, like, it was stuff like that. And it was like, we're always joking and laughing and having fun. and we're sleeping on like like disgusting mats like there's this one place in uh, niteroi which is just outside of rio it's called caio martins 
it's where the Botafogo uh, uh, soccer club stadium is, right? And they have these old, like, gymnastic mats, and they let us sleep there for free, right? So, like, these mats were just, like, filled with, like, lice, like, you name it. Mm. It was just gross as it gets. But that's the you know, that's all we had, and it, we still made it fun, though. That's a crazy thing. Yeah. Now, sometimes you can stay at a five-star hotel and have a shitty day. <laughs> sleeping on, like, you know, like filthy mats and still having a blast. And like, you didn't want to miss out. And I think that we did it mostly because of the fun, more than the competition itself. Yeah. You know, we would rent a whole bus. We have a whole bus, like 30, 40 of us in a bus. And we drive cross-country, man. We go, like, sometimes, one time we drove for 24 hours straight for one competition. Wow. You know, so, um, yeah, some of the best memories of my, uh, in my life were from that period. And, you know, me and Tiago were very fortunate to live that together. And we, we have to give Paulo a lot of credit for that. No, that's good. That's good. And they were different times. Like, it, like you're saying, describing what you slept in, that, like the conditions you slept in, that we didn't care back in the day. Well, it was, it was you know, you, you're, you're, you don't care. You got, you got other things on your mind, you know, and yeah. the luxury and the, the comfort is just not, they're not really things that you worry about. Um, and what else, man? A lot of farting. A lot of farting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gross, man. I can imagine. Yeah. Oh man, it's like gross. Like there would be like snot all over. Like we'd like and we'd like we put snot purposely on places where people were gonna put their hands like on a roll, <laughs> and they just have the booger on their hand. We were dying. It was like the funniest thing in the world. Now looking back, like as a grown man, it's like man, that was stupid and disgusting. But <laughs> you're 19. That's like the funniest thing in the world. Like it just <laughs> it was so fun. And it was just like it was it was it was a family, man. It was like a brotherhood. It was. Yeah. Um, we really cared about each other winning, you know, it wasn't just lip service. It wasn't like when you said good luck or, you know, you're going to kick ass, you meant it, you know, and yeah. you were there on the mats and you knew that when you stepped on the mats, those guys would be there with you. You yeah. knew that the second you stepped foot on the mats, you were not doing that alone. Yeah. And it, even in, in, in all the, you know, my, I've had those, those experiences and that family sort of feel in, in my life in many instances, but, I don't think I've ever had it like I had it with Maromba in my purple belt days. You know, yeah. that was really a golden age in terms of like camaraderie. Like it's very difficult to replicate that. Paulo is a very unique individual to be able to do that. Like it's, it, it's a beautiful, um, it's, it's a beautiful energy that he created amongst his, his students. And I have never seen it anywhere else. Like I, it's very, very unique. Oh, that's cool. That's really good to hear. Um, was it cool back, I think it was last year, having the World uh, Masters Camp? I think he was training in your gym with Tiago. Yeah. Everyone was that pretty cool to have them all there together again? Yeah, um, 100%. Like, it was it was fun meeting Paulo. I have his picture on the wall at the gym. Yeah. I, I elected not to have Kilio and Carlos because I never met Kilio and Carlos. I elected to have on my wall the people who taught me jiu-jitsu. So it went Steve Da Silva, Paulo Strecker, Tedede, and Leo Vieira. So that was my way of honoring my masters and the people who taught me. So I think Paul was really happy to see his picture on the wall there. And we're yeah, good friends. I, I love, I love him to death. And I always say when I go to Brazil, I'm going to visit, but it's always a rush. But last time he came and visited us and, you know, unfortunately we didn't spend enough time together. He came with his family and they wanted to enjoy Vegas, you know, and you know how that goes. So, yeah. you know, so yeah. I don't get to see my friends when they come to Vegas because the strip is a lot more fun than hanging out with me. Yeah. <laughs> the casino nightlife. Yeah. Yeah. So it is what it is. But great people, man. Really good times. Um, one other question about that. Back in those days, like per book days, how many comps do you reckon you were averaging per year, roughly? 2001 and two were very, very busy years for us. In 2001, I had. At, I think I counted one. I collected 31 medals in one year. Wow. So that tells me I competed. I mean, I didn't, not all of them had open. Yeah. So I'm going to go at least 20-some competitions, maybe 25 competitions yep. in one year. So it was like every other weekend. Like we were traveling. Weekend, yeah, that's crazy. Sometimes, yeah, like Chicago's so right. Sometimes we had two competitions in one weekend, one Saturday, one Sunday. Yeah. You know, drive as far as we had to and – and it was an expense. There was no, there were no sponsors. It was just money out of our pockets. But you didn't want to miss out on the action. I think that was the real reason why we went. You didn't want to, you know, be the guy who on Monday night class you'd be hearing all the stories of how the tournament <laughs> went, went there to witness it. You know, yeah, so I you just gone. 
Yes. So yeah. I think that was, and at least to me, that was a big part of why I, I always made an effort to go. I just yeah. wanted to be part of all of it. Yeah, that's crazy. It's pretty unimaginable for me, like growing up in Australia and competing in Australia, there's not as many competitions. So like imagining to compete like every second weekend is like crazy. Um, you know, it's, it's, here's the thing. The competitions in Brazil are not profitable. Like, I think that a lot of the, 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 the people who run tournaments in Brazil, they do it out of passion. Yeah. I, I'm surprised if they made any money. Like, I think most of the time they're barely breaking even. But it's for love, you know. And I think that every, every, every country needs someone that does that. Like, for, yeah. for, for where we grew up, we had Orlando Saraiva, who was Paulo's teacher. And he organized tournaments all over the place. And I doubt he's ever made any money from it. But he really loved jiu-jitsu. And, he went, and I think that jiu-jitsu needs people like that. you got to find that one guy that's willing to make the effort just to help the sport grow. Um, it, but it's, it's, it's problematic because it's, it, it's expensive to travel. You know, it's not cheap and people have lives. And it's a huge commitment to put 100% of what you make into gas and tolls and, you know, and registering to compete tournaments and new gear because no one's giving you gear. So, you know, it's, uh, it does help a lot. I think that being, living that lifestyle is, is, a, is a privilege. Um, and it's, yeah, Brazil, I don't know how it is these days. I haven't been in Brazil in a long time, but I imagine that still exists. And it's, it's, it helps them in a lot of ways. It's kind of like being a, a wrestler in high school in the U.S. You get yeah, to true. wrestle every weekend if you want. So by the time you make it to college, you've had hundreds of matches. Yeah, more than way more than jujitsu, by the way. Like the way they do it here in the U.S., they like, have so many wrestling matches. By the time they they're out of college, that like they have so much experience, it's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I hope that jujitsu has that one day. Every country where people are able to get that sort of experience, and maybe the recipe, small tournaments, in-house tournaments. If we could get rid of the politics and just have people come together and actually support one another. It's very political because of the money. You know, yeah. I don't know if there's a solution out of that problem. I, it, there may or may not be a solution to that. Um, Probably not because, yeah, once money, when, when money's involved, there's never really a solution. And that's, that's the advantage of judo and wrestling. There's an advantage and a disadvantage. Yeah. Judo and wrestling have government funding behind them, right? So as a coach, it's bad because it's hard to get that job right it's gonna be harder for most coaches and you're probably not gonna get paid a lot as a gym owner i can make more with jiu-jitsu privatized it's like a niche yeah. kind of martial art but on the other hand it's you know you don't get that that a competition experience that you would get if you were a judo or wrestler yeah a judo or wrestler right yeah for sure um just going back to your gym i was curious about the name um zenith and also why you chose to uh be located in las vegas uh, I'll start with the, the last one. Vegas is because, well, I, I attended college in Vegas after I finished high school mm-hmm. when I was 17 years old. So I did live in Vegas, 99 and 2000, before I moved back to train with Paulo. I was living in Vegas. So Vegas has been, uh, I have family here as well. My father lives in Vegas. My whole family on my mother's side lives in Vegas. On my father's side, I'm sorry. Uh, it's also the world capital for MMA. So it made sense for me to be in Vegas for those yeah. reasons. Yeah. Um, what was the other question again? Um, uh, what your Zenith, the name Zenith, where does that come from? Okay, so that's an interesting story. So when Kavaka left Czech, man, he called me. He calls me up and he goes, "Hey, Rob, like I want to do a team together with you. We get along. We have a lot of the same ideas. We have the same vision. Why don't we do something together?" I'm like, "Sure." And uh, he, uh, I, I can't remember if it was him or me. I'm gonna go. It was him because I wouldn't have suggested that name, but he suggested a name called Zion, Zion. And, and at, at first I didn't really register, right? The problems that come with that word. And the, and we created a shield right away. One of his guys drew a shield with a Z and he loved the logo Zion, Zion. That was it. We even had like Zion over the shield instead of Zenith. Right. Yep. And it was only when I saw the logo that I go, wait a second. Like this is a very politically loaded term. It is very offensive to a lot of people. You know, if you're an Arab, like this is extremely offensive. And I have students who are Arabs. We have affiliates that are run by people of Arab descent. So, like, I, there's no way I can make them put Zion on their gi. And I'm trying to explain this to Kavak, and at first he doesn't get it. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Because in Brazil, that, that, that issue is not – it is not a non-issue in Brazil, right? It's not – 
it doesn't carry the same connotation. And, and Kavaka being a Christian, like he saw that he thought the name was, you know, was in tune with his beliefs. And, and in that regard, even though I'm not a religious person, like I would have been okay with it, but I didn't want a politically loaded term to be associated with our team. You know, yeah. I really didn't like that. And I kind of put my foot down. I'm like, no, man, we can't call it Dead Zion. It's a horrible idea. But he loved the logo. So I had like, man, he likes the logo so much. I think he likes the logo more than he likes the, the name Zion. So if I could come up with another, another, another uh, um, a team name that has a Z in it, <laughs> then we would solve that problem. So the first one that came to my mind is Zenith, because Zenith means like it's the, the, the pinnacle of a trajectory, right? So the sun at noon is at its Zenith. Ah, yep. So that's, it makes perfect sense with what we're doing. You're in trajectory and you're trying to reach the Zenith, right? Like if you're an athlete, if you're a team, if you're a teacher, everything we do is to aspire to be the best version of our own trajectories. I'm not comparing myself to your trajectory. It's to my own. And once I get there, that's my Zenith, right? So I actually think it's the most meaningful name in all of all the jiu-jitsu teams. We may not be the best or biggest team, but we definitely have the best name. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that was it. And then it stuck. And, you know, I, we've been, we founded the team in 2012. And uh, we're very good friends, a lot of good stories, a lot of work ahead. Like running a team is highly political, man. Like it's yeah. way more work than running a gym. Yeah. But we manage. Yep. Nice. That's cool. Um, you've got a. You've been working hard on a documentary, the history of Jiu-Jitsu. Um, how is that coming along? When can we expect to see it? Everyone's very keen to to see it. Uh, no, I am probably getting so much. Everyone. Yeah, I, I feel bad because I've been saying like soon for like two years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> It's and the real problem here's a real problem is the script. Like, how do you tell the story? Yeah, because you know you got a story to tell, and you know that it's people are going to be excited, you know, people are going to like it. The problem is, like, what do you cut out? Like, in a perfect world, we would have the funds for a 12 part series. Yep, in a perfect world, because we have enough material for 12 episodes, yep. we could do a taco series of 12 episodes, no problem. I mean maybe not 12, maybe like eight or 10, right? But we have tons of footage and we can't use it all. So the question is, what do we cut out? Do we cut out like, you know, do we focus more on this character or that character? Do we focus on more like this storytelling? Like we talk a little bit more about the influence of catch wrestling. Do we talk more about the divorce between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo? Do we talk more about Carlos and Helios per personalities and how they played a role in jiu-jitsu. Do we talk more about Oscar Santa Maria, the man who financed BJJ, and without him, there would be no BJJ. It would have died. Do we talk about Pascual Segreto, the man who was adamant about having fights in the circus, and that's what got the ball rolling? Do we talk about the circus? Do we talk about Maeda and the other Japanese? And all these Japanese are traveling through Brazil and like doing fights in circuses. Do we talk about their trajectory through Latin America and Europe? Do we talk about the jiu-jitsu boom early in the 20th century? Or no, do we talk about where jiu-jitsu, where judo comes from? Do we talk about the film? We can, there's so many different ways we can approach this. Because the origin of jiu-jitsu is too complex of a story for you to tell in 90 minutes. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's been very, very difficult. Like we... We originally were going to start with the Sengoku period in Japan and then the Tokugawa era. And then we're like, wait a second. We don't know shit about this period. We don't have a soundbite for it. You know, I was later corrected by a historian. The samurai had nothing to do with jujitsu. Like, I thought they did. They didn't. And then I'm thinking to myself, like, why are we actually even beginning here? Like, why don't we start somewhere else, right? So this same historian that helps us a lot, does a lot of consulting for us, he suggested that, uh, uh, I, I think you might, I'll talk to you later, okay, buddy? So he suggested that uh, um, we start with Commodore Perry's invasion of Japan. So as you guys know, American, you know, Navy shows up in Tokyo, or Edo at the time, open up the city for commerce, right? And Chogun says, no, we want to keep our ways. We will remain closed. They come back a second trip next year and say, listen, this time we brought cannons. You either do business with us or we're going to bomb you, right? Free market. <laughs> and they, right, that's what, that's what they call free market at, at gunpoint. And the shogun relents. Says, what, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? What are his choices? So he opens up, right? So there begins the friction between east and west. And one of the things, first thing that happens 
is a, a match between sumo wrestlers and American Marines. All right, so the Shogun selects two sumo wrestlers. Commodore Perry, um, either him or someone else selects two Marines. Maybe they volunteer, but they fight. And it's in this friction that we believe that the beginning of our story should take place. Because Yugoro Kano is not, and Judo are not product of Japanese society by itself. They're heavily influenced by Western ideas of education. They're not Japanese ideas of education. They're Western ideas, Western philosophy. The ideas uh, you know, of sport. I, sport is not a Japanese concept. It's a European concept. Right? The idea of sports and physical education, they're, being, they're, they're, they're being po becoming popularized around the world during this period. So Jigoro Kano is a mind, he has a mind that is like, you know, he's Japanese, but he has a mind ready for modernity, right? Yeah. So Jigoro Kano is interesting because he sits at the intersection of these two worlds, right? The, the reformation that Japan was going through. And he, he was brilliant because he saw that there was, an, there was a desire to preserve the traditional, but there was also rapid changes that Japan had to go through if it wanted to, you know, if it didn't want to be completely westernized. So in a way, I think that he pleased, he was like right in the middle of all this because, you know, he created something that was accessible, not only to Japanese, but to the entire world. Jirobi went out to become the most practiced martial art in the world. And he also maintained, he kept it very traditional in a lot of ways. There was a lot of Japanese um, ethics, I think, in judo that survived till this day. You see the respect, the hierarchy, the 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 cleansiness of of, of the mats and the geese and like the the politeness. All that that's not Brazilian. Brazilians are very different. They have their own way of doing things, you know. Like, and in judo, you see uh, um, you see the or that's not Western for that matter. Like, you know, Jigoro Kano kept aspects of of Japan in judo, but he took a lot from the West as well, even from wrestling. So that's where we begin our story. And then the birth of Kodokan, and then Japanese immigration, not for noble reasons, but for economic reasons. They're leaving Japan, not because they're missionaries of Kodokan. They're leaving Japan for the same reason most people leave their home country. They want to make money. Yep. And many of these Japanese knew how to fight. You know, and some of them made it to the Amazon. Brazil was going through the rubber boom at the time. So there's all these historical events that play a role in the development of jiu-jitsu. Right? The Russo-Japanese War. Japan beats Russia. Who would have thought tiny Japan would beat Russia, yeah. right? So the Japanese use this as a tool, marketing tool to sell not only, uh, um, I mean, to say it was, it was an article of curiosity to the West. So they're selling jujitsu to the West using that idea of the small defeating the large. Tiny Japan defeats large Russia, right? So that whole thing about the little defeating the big, that is not new. That is a very, very old marketing tactic and it worked. The world was was you know like it you know the the the, the book where i got a lot of this information from is called craze and it's a period that we call the craze of jujitsu and it was early in the 20th century right many of these travelers made it to the amazon where they're going to train some brazilians and that's where the story starts getting a little more, more complex it's less controversial up to then i feel like and because everything we know up to very recently has been based off the testimony of Carlos Gracie. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you took every website, every Wikipedia, every newspaper, every magazine, every web, everything, if you trace back the origin of all the stories about the history of Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil, they all go back to one source, Carlos Gracie. And that's why it's a problematic source, because he had everything to gain from that narrative. Yeah. Right? Had it been, you know, if, if, if you say something about yourself that detracts from your accomplishments, you're far more likely to be credible. But when you tell a story that, you know, that, that puts your, that gives credit to you to yourself, there's always, there's more reason to be suspicious. It doesn't mean that he was lying, but it, there's more reason to be suspicious. And once the research came out, and it came out after 2012, 13, when the Brazilian National Library began digitizing all their files, and that's, that was like a renaissance of research in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu history because now everyone can access these files. You guys can go on there and look right up. You can type in Carlos Gracie and boom, they come up. Yep. Now you have to dig through thousands of articles. You're going to spend a big chunk of your, you know, your day going through articles to try to find something half decent. But that is, has, was made available because of technology, right? So once we have that in our hands, now we're able to tell a story with a very, from a very different perspective. Like, wait a second. There wasn't, you know, there was a lot of other people training. That's not exactly how it happened. And there's all these other guys that played a role in the development of BJJ, but no one's ever heard of them. Yep. So, you know, considering that most people won't be read 
all the academic work and all the research and, and not go into Brazilian National Library to research this, we decided the best way to get this story across to people and create a bridge between you know, the, the, the most serious work out there and the public that is like reading stories from Wikipedia, the best way to bridge that world was a documentary film. Like we truly feel that way. And we feel that we are in a very unique position in history because as I mentioned, the research has been made available very, very recently. Prior to that, there was not a lot available, right? The, the, the most of what we know about digital history came after 2012, 13 with the digitizing of files. But during that period, you got to remember all these grand masters who lived that period, they're all dying too. Yep. So in other words, it's like a you know, little Goldilocks position, time in history. We got like a five-year window there. Yep. And we came in right within that window. So when I think about that, I go, what a privileged position to be in. Because 10 years from now, you will have even better research, but you're not going to have the grand masters. Yeah. 10 years before, you're going to have all the grand masters, but you're not going to have the research. Yep. So we, we come in at a very, very unique timing in, you know, a, a, a time in history to do this. And it was an accident. It was not intentional. We, you know, I didn't do the math until much later. But I think that I don't think that it's ever going to be a film that's going to be able to tell jiu-jitsu history as accurately and as richly as, as we plan on telling it. Because they're not going to have the testimony. They're yep. only going to have the files. They all, all they have is new paper articles. They're not going to have a single witness of, of those times. And it might be better in terms of production, but in terms of like credibility, because we have the grand masters in front of a camera, we've interviewed like nine red belts. Like it's never been done. Yeah. That's crazy. That's super impressive. Um, I was watching the video uh, with grandmaster Armando. Um, I don't know how to say his last name. Reed? Read it. I, I can't say it either. Don't feel bad. I can't. <laughs> um, Portuguese. In yeah. Portuguese, we say Bridich. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pretty big honor to um, be able to learn some jiu-jitsu off him and interview him, uh, no doubt. Yeah, he was a very interesting character. Um, he was probably my favorite. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of favorites, don't get me wrong. Like, that favorite ones for different reasons. But Armando was very genuine. That's why I liked him. At one point, we're off camera, right? And I'm recording everything with my phone. I have like some bombshells here that I'm holding on to. I'm like, I don't even know if I want to release it. But I'm, I'm asked for permission. But like our camera, like our film camera was off. I'm filming off my phone. And at one point he goes like this, ah, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to tell you guys everything. <laughs> That's so funny. And, and he was like very, like he was totally at peace with it. You know, he was like, close to 90 when he passed away yeah he was totally at peace with it he was a very happy person um highly intelligent i felt that his vocabulary is probably the best vocabulary i have ever witnessed uh any brazilian i've never seen a brazilian speak portuguese so well it's very impressive um very friendly very nice a lot of energy he wanted to talk he like when we left i felt that you know i'm worried about him being tired and maybe wanted to rest i think that had we had we hung out there for another day, he would have been completely okay with it. He well, he had a lot to say. Like he was, he was like Helios, like one of these first black belts, maybe first, second. Oh wow! You know, no one really knows the order, but there might have been João Alberto Barreto and Armando Vrida at the same time. We don't really know who got their black belt first, yeah. but he's certainly one of the oldest black belts alive, or was at the time we interviewed him. Yep. And he will normally walks around naked. Apparently, you see him in Speedos in the video. Apparently, his <laughs> students had to beg him to put his Speedos on because he just wanted to be naked because he feels that's the natural way of being. Yeah. And he's like, to this day, I can't understand why people are so adamant about walking around with clothes. You were born naked. Why can't you walk? So he's a nudist, right? <laughs> and, and he lives in a ranch. And apparently, he walks around the ranch naked, but the neighbors can see him. They're like ranches nearby, and they can all see him walking around naked. They're all used to him being naked. And I'm like, oh, thank God he put his Speedos on. Because when you saw him in Speedos, I'm like, oh, man. You know, but after I heard that, I'm like, okay, Speedos it is. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you got naked with him and walked around with him. No, I, I would have, you know. Like, <laughs> we're going to have the opportunity to walk around naked with a grandmaster like Armando Vrida. Taking <laughs> <laughs> that opportunity, you know. But he was, man, he was, he taught every day. Taught class every day. Wow. Uh, drove. He has like a mat area outside his ranch, still in his property, and he would drive there. Like you know, that's crazy. 
Yeah, he had so much life to him. It's so sad that he passed away. Yeah. Because I really felt that out of everyone we spoke to, the one that most felt like a grandmaster to me was him. Yeah. The other one I was really excited uh, to talk to was George Medee, who also passed away a little while ago. Yeah. George Medee might have played maybe the biggest role out of everyone because many people in Brazil said that George Medee, who had lived in Japan for many, many years, when he came back, he was bringing back all those Kosen Judo techniques, and he's the one who really started the technical revolution in Brazil. And the story adds up. We don't have evidence for it, but the story does add up. So George McGee might have been, even though he's like one of the less heard of characters, he might have been one of the most important ones next to Carlos and Delio, if not even more. Yeah. But he was a very humble person. He didn't like his name in the press. Uh, we had Flavio Bering beg him to give us an interview. Like we had Flavio Bering's like, hey, man, these guys are doing a really cool film. They really want to interview. And he's like, no interviews. I have, I have nothing to say. I'm a no one. He's a very humble person. Yeah. Never like the spotlight. He's the opposite of, you know, your, your social media millennial, you know, like he's yeah. the polar opposite of that. And for that, I admire him. But I think in some ways his humility did a disservice to the history of jujitsu because, he, uh, you know, unwillingly by not being interviewed, he actually, he actually hurt our cause a little bit. And we really wanted to tell his story, not just for his ego, not, oh, not for his ego at all, really, but just to be accurate about how BJJ developed. Yeah. And by being silent, I think that I think by being silent, I think what he did was he you when you're silent, you allow the dominant narrative to take over. Yeah. And to me, that is that is a political stance. Yeah. When you know something and you don't say it, that's not neutrality. That is a political stance. You choose to be neutral when you know something that is valuable for that particular story. And and I really wish that he had given us an interview. I, I was really excited to talk to him. Uh, from all accounts, he was like a true wise man. Like he had a lot to teach, a lot to say, and he was very, very loved, but he was very, very private. So too bad we didn't get to talk to him. That was probably the biggest loss in the, in the whole. The one thing I wish if I had a time machine, I could have changed anything throughout the production was to sit down with George Medina and talk to him. Like I would have loved that opportunity. Yeah, sure, it would have yeah. been cool. I would, would have been, yeah, sucked heaps that you couldn't interview him. We're definitely going to have to catch up for a... Uh a beer next time we're in Vegas or you're in Australia because I love the history and I just I could sit here and listen to that for hours yeah oh I got stories for days man I got <laughs> don't even dream of people fall off their horse if they heard some of this stuff they would because a lot of it challenges a lot of it is personal there's a reason why I didn't want to talk about it in documentary because it's too personal and I never wanted a documentary to be about this character or that character I think that that was not the right approach a documentary is about jujitsu Yep. So we talk about who, what are the events and players that made the, the, the bush that is jiu-jitsu possible. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is not a line. It's a bush. It's not linear. It's very complex. It goes in many different directions. It comes back. It's got too many influences for you to say it's this top-down linear, you know, uh, uh, interpretation of, 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 of the facts. Yeah. But you know, I, I really, I feel that, that the personal stuff is not relevant per se to the history, but if I were to make a documentary about this character or that character, I 100% would use this and they would not come across as good people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, well, talking about uh, not so much the history of jiu-jitsu, but what shape do you think jiu-jitsu is in now? I think the coronavirus has been single-handedly the biggest cultural hit to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because what we do is the opposite of social distancing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the effects, the long-term, mid-term and long-term effects of this. What I do know is that my daughters are scared of like being near people. Yep. They know not to be close to people. And I worry that that's going to linger. That's going to be part of the new norm is stay away from people. People are, there are these, all of these things that you interact with from far away. There's not going to be any human touch and contact you don't hug anymore you know you don't shake hands with strangers like i worry about that because that would be a big hit to our culture yeah but you know as far as the rest of the sport it grew it grew and even i used to think that it had bjj grown the way judo did it would have not have splintered but even judo splintered there's kosen judo which is ironic that the two you know the the the, the there's kosen judo which is they basically left judo because they felt they didn't leave, but 
they, they created a niche outside of judo because they wanted more ground and Brazilian jiu-jitsu for the same reasons, you know. And then there's sambo too. So there's one, some, there was some splintering off of judo. Like judo did a really good job staying cohesive, but not completely cohesive over the years. And I think BJJ is at a point in its history where it is uh, splint, uh, splintering. It's, you know, we see, the, um, we see the rise of like a more no point submission only kind of rule set, gi and no gi. Now we even have American jiu-jitsu. I don't even know what the hell that means. I'm still like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. And I like Keenan. He's a great guy. I mean, he really is. I met him a few times. Gentleman, nice guy, smart, sweetheart. I just don't know what he means. Like, he's doing the same stuff everyone else is doing, you know? Yeah. I, don't, I never liked to be in BJJ, to be honest, because jiu-jitsu is jiu-jitsu. No one calls it Brazilian jiu-jitsu in Brazil. That's an American invention. No one in Brazil ever – you don't go to China and ask for Chinese food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good point. Thiago, um, Coach Thiago, he said the same thing. Um, no one calls it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. No, no, no one. And it's funny because when I went to Thailand and I asked for Thai tea, they looked at me like I was retarded. <laughs> <laughs> tea? And I'm like, yeah, Thai tea. You mean tea? I'm like, yeah, 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 tea. I got it. I got it. I try, try, <laughs> I try acting like I, my question wasn't retarded when in fact. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I understand why it was necessary in the beginning. I do think there's an argument for the B and BJJ. I don't think it's a bad argument. There are many, many cultural traits of Brazilian culture that have made it into the sport of BJJ. And I've witnessed them in Australia. I've witnessed them in Dagestan and Chechnya. I have witnessed them in Japan. I have witnessed them in Germany and Canada. I have witnessed them in Scandinavia. And I'll tell you what they are. It's the fist bump. It's the SAE. It's the surf culture. It's the streetwear. It's the relaxed manners on the mats. It's the, it's the hugging of strangers, you know, you, you know, it, it, Brazilian people for all their flaws, they're very warm people. Yep. They're very warm people. And I can't stop. I, and I, you know, haven't, haven't had the privilege to travel the world teaching jujitsu. I can't see how someone can tell me that there are not traits of Brazilian culture inside every BJJ gym all over the world. I can't yeah. see like, how do you not see Brazil here? I, I saw it screamed at me. It really was like one of those light bulb moments. And this was one of my – Yuki Nakai was one of my favorite interviews in Japan. And even though he's like not – he's like a little bit older than me. He's not like an ancient. But he is important because he is the ambassador for Brazilian jiu-jitsu in Japan. He has a background in judo and shuto. But later he becomes assimilated by Brazilian jiu-jitsu and becomes the president of the Japanese Brazilian jiu-jitsu federation. I love that term for some reason. Japanese <laughs> president of the Japanese Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. But he, um, he, he gave us a really cool interview. And one of the things I noticed in, uh, when I went to his gym is when we went to the Kosen gym, the Kosen Judo at the Tokyo University and Kyoto University, you know, the black boats all showed up 30 minutes early. True story, everyone's early. Their geese are immaculately clean. I am talking the cleanest geese you have ever seen in your life. The belts were clean. They even smelled good. Yep. Bowed. Like they bowed. They were so respectful towards me. It's like some of them knew who I was. I was flattered. You know, they're bowing and everyone's so respectful. And like before class, all the black belts, the black belts are sweeping the mats before class. And it was like a symphony. The, 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 the brooms on the mats. I have a video of it. And they're sweeping the mats. And it was so beautiful. And I'm thinking, wow, man, this is truly impressive. And then I go to Yuki Nakai's gym which is also in Tokyo. Everyone's super respectful, but people weren't on time. The geese were not that clean. The patches were coming <laughs> off. People would sit on the mats and like with their legs open and take their time to tape their fingers while they're laughing and joking around. And that's when I was like, this ain't Japan, man. <laughs> this is Brazil. Like, and it's everywhere I go, it's the same. It's like the people relaxed manners is a Brazilian trait, you know? So you could make an argument for the B and BJJ because what makes jiu-jitsu so, um, what makes jiu-jitsu so appealing to so many people, I believe it's not just the technique, it's the culture. It's a very happy place. I refer to it as a third place. First place is work, gotta go to work. Second place is home, gotta go home. Third place is the gym, you choose to be at the gym. Yep. Therefore, it must by definition be a happy place. Yep. And I think that one reason why it's growing so fast, it's not just because of the arsenal of techniques that it has available, 
but it's because it brings a very, very happy, relaxed culture. And it's a nice break from a stressful life. Yeah, for sure. So true, yeah. And, and if there's one thing the Brazilians are experts at, perhaps better than any other people in the world, is how to make a joke out of problems. Yeah. <laughs> how to laugh at life, no matter how bad things are. There are, like, Brazil was on the brink of, like, a revolution or a military coup, or, like, the economic collapse. It doesn't matter. They're still joking about it. Yeah. And it's almost like too much, if you ask me. But they, they, it's, it's, it's a quality in a lot of ways because I don't know the numbers, but I suspect the depression and suicide rates in Brazil are some of the lowest in the world. And I think it has to do with that attitude towards life of no matter how bad it is, smile and move forward. Yeah. And yeah. because it's pretty crazy down there. I mean, like, I, you know, I've lived there. Sometimes I go there and I'm like, I don't know how, I don't know how they, you guys manage because it's it's enraging the corruption the the, the traffic the violence like how on earth do we did do we live here yeah. you know but they manage to be happy they just they just find a way to be happy and i see some of that that element of that that happiness in brazilian jiu jitsu as a martial art worldwide so i'm not married to the term brazilian jiu jitsu or jiu jitsu i never made a big deal out of it i've used both but um I, 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 American jiu-jitsu just doesn't make sense to me. Like, I just don't see why. Like, I'm not, if it were a different rule set, you could maybe make a case, but it's the same rule set, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's what doesn't, doesn't make sense to me either. Um, so we've only got a few questions to go, but one of them was the, uh, I suppose, the thing that's popped up in the last few years in jiu-jitsu is the sort of WWE-style characters that carry on like pork chops on social media and, um, do you, I suppose the main one is Gordon. Are you a fan of that sort of stuff or are you like myself? I'm not a big fan of it. I do think I look at say, uh, Bush Escher. Um, he's a great champion. Doesn't need to tell everyone he's a great champion. He just does it. Um, so it's a different, you know, my, I don't have a, a beef with so much with the Connors of the world, the Muhammad Ali's. What I don't understand is people applauding it. Like, I get why they do it. They make more money. Now, yeah. you can agree or disagree with that rationale, but you can't deny that there is a rationale behind it. There's a logic behind what they do. Yes. Makes sense. You make more money. Now, I don't agree with it, but I understand it. What I don't understand are people applauding it. That I will never understand why, why anyone would think that that sort of trash talking is, is, is good or should be rewarded. Like, I, it makes, to me, when I see that trash talking, I purposely don't buy the pay-per-view. I'm like, I'm not supporting that. Yeah. Like, I don't watch it, you know? I did see Khabib and Connor because I knew Khabib was going to win. And, like, I just wanted someone to shut him up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and because he's a grappler. So, like, I, I, I knew he was going to get, you know, he was going to win. So, but other than that, for the mo most part, I do boycott it. I don't like it. It's, it's a different approach. It's, 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 a, it's a, a Western and Eastern thing. And in Japan, I personally believe that pride was great, not because of the rule set. Pride was great, and it was always going to be the greatest in the main event in the world to me because of the Japanese crowd, the fans. Yep. It was a respect there. It was, it was a ceremony. It was entertainment, too. They liked their pro wrestling, don't get me wrong, but there was a respect there. It was a ceremony, you know? Like, in, in the West, I feel it's a bar fight. I think most fans look at the UFC as a bar fight. They give me blood, you know? They don't see a form of art. They see, you know two alpha males being the crap out of each other. And unless there's a KO, I'm not entertained. Yeah. Like yeah. Booing, booing someone who's got someone on the ground using wrestling jujitsu. Very, very uneducated crowd for the most part. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways I'm American and a lot of ways I'm Brazilian, but in this regard, I, I think I'm more Japanese than American. Like I, I, I like that respect. I think that jujitsu has a, a social purpose. It's not just a make, make myself money purpose. We all got to make money, but it has a social purpose. And guys who are behaving like that, they don't realize how, how many little kids out there are looking up to them and they're growing up watching that. And you've seen people be successful without doing that. Like we've seen the GSPs, we've seen the Randys. You probably make more doing what Connor does, but I don't like it. I think that BJJ is, is problematic. MMA is straight out, it's, it's a Western thing. Like UFC, even though they got the idea from Brazil, 
it is very, very it, 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 it learned from boxing. It got its lessons from boxing. So they just continued boxing in a lot of ways, right? The culture was the same as boxing. Yep. But Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu kind of sits in a weird position because it's Japanese and then it's Brazilian. And in Brazilians, with all their flaws, the respect is still there. People like Gordon Ryan get kicked out of gyms in Brazil. And I've seen this. I've had world-class guys try to train with us at Braza back in the day, and we'd say no. And they were world champions. And we said no because we didn't like their attitude. People like that don't last in Brazil. They end up alone, right? Because, like, you know, there's, there's, like, there's an expectation for hierarchy and respect there that either from Brazil or they got it from the Japanese, whatever the case, but it lingers in Brazilian jiu-jitsu culture in Brazil. In the U.S., less so. And what I mean by that is it's more acceptable to behave the way, you know, some of these guys are behaving. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's entertain me, entertain me, you know, it's entertain me. Everything's okay, you know, as long as they're being entertained. And I'm like, man, have you ever seen Chappelle stand-up comedy? Yeah. Oh, that shit's entertaining me, man. Have you ever seen, like, Bill Burr? To me, that's funny. Yeah. I watch Chris Rock. I think he's hilarious. And I watch Connor talking crap. I'm like, all right, it's kind of funny. Not that funny. You know, if I, if I want to see a fight, I want to see skills. If I want to see a comedy, I want to watch Chappelle. You know, so – you know, I think that, that the crowd is just so desperate for entertainment that anything's acceptable. They're just different approaches. Like, I don't think we can stop it. I think that there's an, there's an effort, an enormous effort to professionalize jiu-jitsu. The last ADCC was a clear demonstration of this. I think that they lost their aura of being special. They're becoming fight to win. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I, I like Seth and fight to win and what they're doing. But ADCC was special. And it was special because – it was unique in so many different ways, right? It's an Arab tournament for royalty. This is a something for royalty, right? It was an Arab mystique behind it. And it's been increasingly turned into, you know, it's, it's looking more and more like a pro wrestling event. And I think we lose, to me, it's less and less special. Even though the level has gone up, technically it's going up. There's no question about that. In terms of its prestige, I think it's going to go down. I think ADCC is going to become less prestigious over time because yep. it's going to become like every other professional event. If you're going to become like every other professional event, that means that other professional events can do what you do. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? They, they, they're not doing this. In my opinion, they're doing this. They're being like everyone else instead of maintaining that high elevated position of we're ADCC, we're untouchable. Yeah. You know, I think they're, they're becoming more banal in, 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 that, in, that, in that sense. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't like it, but you know, I'm not, I'm not the majority, you know, like I think I'm, you know, the minority here and I, I accept it is what it is. And you can't change people's perspectives. I have my opinions. I, I hope that Jap jujitsu remains more Japanese than pro wrestling in that regard. I like the, the respect and the hierarchy, but I feel that even though jujitsu is hard to professionalize, like there's not a single profitable event out there. I'll tell you that right now. I think Seth with fight to win might be profitable because he targets locals and ticket sales for family members but you know like other events are in the hole like i i know this for a fact because i've ran a professional event once i've worked for acb extensively i know how much these shows cost they're not cheap yeah and i know how much these guys are getting paid and i'm looking at the audience and how many tickets they're selling and i'm like there's no way these guys are turning a profit yeah so is it sustainable i don't think it i maybe Maybe in the future that will change. But right now, every professional organization that has, like, is constantly drawing big names, they are being – they're artificially run by external capital. It's not organic. And because it's not organic, I don't think they're sustainable. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Alrighty, we're almost done. We've got a couple of uh, more fun questions to do. Well, can I ask a question? Should oh, yes, you can. Go, go for it. Um, staying on the topic of ADCC, how was your first like ADCC experience um, with everything? I, I competed three ADCCs. The first one was 2005. Um, um, I was invited. I never won the trial. It's a little privileged there. Like ADCC does uh, favor foreigners. Uh, I came in. I got in because I had an American passport, so I got in as an American. They didn't ask any questions. Robert Drysdale, American passport, didn't ask any questions about the fact that I was living and competing in Brazil. <laughs> I think that international uh, feel to it, which I get. But personally, I think that people should be selected based off their skills, not their nationality. Yep. So to me, me being invited to ADCC has an element of privilege to it. Uh, I'll give you an example. They have two trials in the U.S. and only one in Brazil. I don't think that's fair, personally. Yeah. 
it doesn't even make sense to me. If there's a place that you have two trials, it's Brazil. Yeah. I think the U.S. warrants two trials as well. I think that's justified. But one trial in Brazil is ridiculous, in my opinion. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, I lost my second fight. I fought Anthony Parash, actually, my first ADCC match. I know yeah. and, uh, and then I lost to Kakareku. Kakareku lost to Roger in the final that year. And then I ended up beating Kakareko the next ADCC uh, by rear naked choke. And then in two, I won ADCC in 2007. And then on 2009, I lost a super fight to Jacare over a badly timed guard pull. <laughs> dumb, dumb, dumb Drysdale. But, you know, I don't have a time machine. I don't lament. It's okay. It is what it is. But I really could have won that fight. How good could have um, Jacare been? Sorry to butt in there, but he seemed to be a bit of a monster but didn't compete for very long in jiu-jitsu. He went, no, he, he was very active, blue, purple, brown, black. I think he went to MMA. He won a lot as a black. I think Jacare did compete. The thing is, you know, some guys just stay longer in jiu-jitsu. They, they, they exhaust their youth in jiu-jitsu, where a lot of guys like Jacare, they, you know, they, they move to MMA. It was common to make that move to MMA at that time, where now it's less common. Like, Bushesha doesn't have to. He may want to, but he can. Still young enough to do it. I don't think he wants to, to be honest. Yep. Um, you know, you can, he makes enough money from jiu-jitsu, and I think he's, he's content with what he has accomplished over his, 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 uh, in his career, which, you know, I, he might be the most uh, successful competitor of all time. You know, gi and no gi, in my opinion. Like, there's... It's hard to math, find someone who has won both that much. There are people who won as much in the gi, like Bruno Malfasini is much more close to him in the gi. And there are people that have done the same and more in no gi, but no one has done as much in both. Yeah. You know, so really, he's in the league of his own in that regard. And doesn't have anything to prove. I think he's done plenty. But, you know, a guy like Jacques, I think he moved over to MMA to make some money and maybe to prove himself. And I, I, um, I think he's one of the most physically talented individuals I've ever met in my life. You know, I, I think he was like a freak of nature in terms of his genetics, everything from his power to his speed to his, no, he's, he works hard. Don't get me wrong, but you know, like not everyone can outrun Hussein Bolt. Not everyone can outswim Michael Phelps. And that's just a matter of, there's, a, there's this other element there that you can't discount. You can't like it. it it's the one thing you don't get to choose. Yeah born with like some and then you can improve on it but there's still a ceiling you know there's there's um there's a factor there and it's not a very romantic because the romantic approach to sports is it's all will yeah even will might be genetic there are many scientists who questions the will being a genetic factor some people have a greater desire than others and that would be a genetic factor as well yeah mind is not as you're not in, you're not in control of what you do as much as you think you are so it's complex discussion, but like in terms of physique, like some individuals stand out, you know, by, by a large margin. Jacare is one of the fastest, most explosive, most gifted individuals I've never encountered in my life. Um, and that's why he had, some, I mean, not the only reason, but he had a very successful career because that plays, a, I think that played a big role in it as well. Yep. Ah, cool. All right. So our uh, fast five questions we've got. Favorite submission? Renegade choke. Cool. Favorite movie? If you've got one. Changes. Uh, I think right now it's Inglorious Bastards. Yep. Close guard. <laughs> Soon to be close guard, as soon as we're ready. <laughs> uh, favorite drink? I like wine, all wines. Cabernet is probably my favorite. It's funny because like, I, I went out, like I was in college like, a few months ago. And then, like, everyone went to the bar to, to drink afterwards. And it's just – I'm the only dude. It's just, like – it was, like, one of those gender study classes. It's all women. And then <laughs> I'm the only dude there. It's, like, nine women and a dude. And they're all ordering beer, and I'm the only one who orders wine. I never <laughs> <thought> <laughs> Times have changed. I, I, I can drink sour beer. It's about the only beer I can drink. I drink Corona and Modelo's, but most beer is disgusting to me. Yeah. I like wine. <laughs> uh, favorite food? Sushi. Nice. Uh, if you had to only have one idol in your life, who would it be? In life, in general, or yeah, in general, fine. In general, whatever you wanted. Anything, anyone. I think my favorite human of all time is Professor Noam Chomsky. 
I think he's one of the greatest minds to ever walk the earth. And believe it or not, he's even inspired my jujitsu. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. Right, our final question that we finish up on is uh, tell us something that people would be surprised to know about Rob Drysdale. I got. I can give a few things. <laughs> I can go on for a while on this one. So you drink wine. This might be a whole podcast. <laughs> uh, let me see, man. I tried really, really hard to play soccer professionally in Brazil. I have played as much soccer as I've done jiu-jitsu in my life, probably. Oh, wow. It is surprising how bad I am. <laughs> would think i'd be a pro i played so much you know i i would go home like angry man i'd be like like crying when i was a kid i'm like how can i be so bad i know the light's horrible right now i don't know why i'm sorry you're all right but yeah um i just i just i just sucked at it man like it wasn't for lack of trying like i didn't and then i ended up being a, a goalkeeper because when you suck at soccer in brazil they put you at the goal and then i got decent at it and i was okay at it like at the goal i, was, I did better People looked at me, oh, you're American. You guys are good at basketball. You'll be a good goalkeeper. You go over there. So they just had me playing the goal all the time. And I got decent at it. I played for a, a, a minor professional league, for the junior league, the junior team of a minor professional team, which is, doesn't sound like a lot, but in Brazil, it's a pretty big deal. Yep. And I was, yep. and I was in the, in, uh, on the bench too. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was my biggest accomplishment in soccer. It doesn't sound like much when you, when you say it like that, but it's actually, it was very competitive. It was really hard to get on that team, but that was the closest thing I ever got to playing. Uh, I used to rollerblade a lot. I was like rollerblade on the half pipe for a minute there. I was getting pretty oh, decent wow. at it. And I was around the time I got into jujitsu. So I used to rollerblade to the gym every day. That was my <laughs> Like, yeah, they, they, like the Fruit Loopers, you know. But I was one of them, and I used to rollerblade to the jiu-jitsu practice every day. And then uh, for a while, there was mountain biking. And mountain biking was just a lot of expenses. Well, that was one of the most expensive sports I've ever, you know, I, I, you could think of. Like, you're constantly buying new stuff. And yeah. mostly because your friends are buying new stuff. So you want to keep up with, like, how much stuff, how much gear they buy. <laughs> what else? Um, man, I, I – I started playing the guitar during the Corona virus thing, yep. the lockdown. So I've been playing a lot of guitar. I found that I've always loved music, but I, you know, I just never really dedicated time to learn anything. And I think music will be part of my life for as long as I'm alive. I plan on, you know, taking 15, 20 minutes out of my day to play the guitar. It's very peaceful. There's something about it that just puts you in a very, very peaceful place. No matter how stressed I am, if I have a guitar and I'm trying to play, and I emphasis on trying, <laughs> um, I am very, very happy. Even if I'm the only one can, under, can then listen to the music that I'm playing, no one else seems to understand that that is actually music. <laughs> I actually really enjoy it. Um, I love books. I love books. I, I really think that if jiu-jitsu didn't exist, I would have gone the academic route. Um, even though the academic work is way too bureaucratic to, to my taste, like there's too much nonsense. I don't think there's a solution, but it's, there's more editing and ass kissing than actual learning going on, you know? Yeah. And yep. It's, I, I, in that regard, it's not for me, but I'm a very curious person. Um, I mean, I think that's like some of the things about me. You know? No, that's cool. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, um, your soccer really sounds like my dad's jujitsu. Just never any. <laughs> <laughs> He tries really hard. Just, hey, you can still beat him up, man. <laughs> I wish I could. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> I wish I could. Oh man, it's uh, it's over. It is Ooh, over. I got, I got two. If I ever have a son, I'm gonna beat the crap out of him when he's little, so he remembers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he remembers. He's gonna be frightened by his old man for the rest of his life. He's like I can't beat that old man. I'm gonna be 90 years old with a cane, and he's gonna be terrified of me because I'm gonna traumatize him. His infancy, his childhood is gonna be terrified you're gonna get ass kicked every day you'll be 90 years old walking around naked at a ranch probably i would do that i might might maybe sooner maybe 45 i might start i, I got a big lot here in my backyard i might start doing that sooner rather than later Close is overrated nice all righty well we'll finish up i just want to uh yeah on behalf of cooper myself and birdie thank you for giving us the time to enlighten us with some jiu-jitsu knowledge and more about yourself personally um We've always found you, like we met you a few years back, 
uh, through Tiago uh, and seminars through Jiu-Jitsu and you've always given us a time of day when we've met with, met with you at comps and stuff like that. Um, you're just a super genuine guy and that's that makes uh, it big for me to uh, have someone like that. And um, yeah, can't wait to catch up with you again once all this craziness is over and we get to come back to the States and have some fun and jiu-jitsu and catch up. But it'd be awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Uh, I had a lot of fun anytime. This is, uh, is a pleasure. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, yeah, Tiago always spoke very highly of you guys. And Tiago was like a brother to me. So, you know, um, yeah. So I'm really happy that you guys are under him. He was one of the good people out there. There's not many of them. Yeah. But he's one of the good ones, you know. Yeah. So uh, you guys got lucky. Count yourself lucky. Yeah. And um, yeah, thanks for this. I had a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, let me know when you guys post it. Okay. And uh, we'll... Uh, I'll share it on my social media. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, All right. thanks for your time. Cheers, Thank you. Robert. Cheers.